episode 111, Breakthroughs in Oncology, Great Advances but Incredibly Costly, How Will Payers Adapt? Today, I speak with David Guy from Aventria Health Group. American healthcare entrepreneurs and executives you want to know. Talking. Relentlessly seeking value. We talk a lot about moving to value-based care. The cost of pharmaceuticals, especially oncology products, are skyrocketing. You can just check with any number of sources like AHRQ or Kaiser or CBS News and get the skinny about the accelerating spend in this category. So it would seem to make sense that payers start to think about how to bend the curve of oncology product spend with the same eye toward value that they're considering medical spend. Today, I speak with David Guy, an oncology expert from Aventria Health Group. My name is Stacy Richter, and this podcast is sponsored by Aventria Health Group. Welcome to Relentless Health Value, David. Hi, thanks. Glad to be here. Today, we are talking about new oncology breakthroughs. The fact that the advances in oncology have been able to produce some pretty amazing results, but they're also incredibly costly, which obviously introduces a couple of hurdles to overcome and challenges as we try to figure out how we're going to pay for all this. Let's talk about what's driving the cost of this class of therapy. What's driving the cost of these new cancer drugs? Yeah, I think it's the pace of innovation. I think we're in a fortunate time. We're probably in a golden era for oncology therapeutics with new technologies and new advances that are happening very rapidly in Probably the biggest focus right now is on this new class of immuno-oncology products, which as we learn how to activate the immune system and address how cancers have been able to avoid our immune system, we're generating new advances in treatment. However, they are extremely costly in the cost of those uh, new interventions. One of the things that we all have heard is what's the value of an additional month of life? I mean, a lot of these products aren't necessarily, in quotes, curing cancer. What they're doing is extending survival time. Right. But that's for the first time we're seeing in like second line non-small cell lung cancer. This is metastatic disease where patients are getting immuno-oncology agents and there's a, a stabilization in the survival curve. So nobody is bold enough really to call them cures, but we're seeing stabilization of those survival curves out year, two years, three years, and people are speculating that because of this activation of the immune system, there may be opportunity for long-term remissions and getting to cures where we never had them before. And there's a new technology that's probably going to be even more expensive called chimeric antigen receptor T-cells or CART, which those products are moving through the clinic rapidly now and getting improvements in a response rate and survival in patients, leukemia patients in particular, that uh, we've never seen before. So there are big advances. But the average cost of a new oncology product these days is well north of $100,000 for an annual cost of treatment. 
And we're seeing trials now with combinations of these drugs that are more than $100,000 each. So we're talking several hundred thousand dollars for a year of therapy and patients may be on several years of therapy. So the question is how as a system, as a health system, are we going to be able to manage that? What are payers doing thus far in order to afford this? Yeah, so to a large degree, because of the complexity of this area historically, and it falls under the medical benefit, they're less capable of managing versus a pharmacy benefit where there might be copays. There hasn't been a huge amount of management of this oncology agents, though that has certainly changed dramatically in recent years. And we're seeing payers now that are creating pathways for how products are used and then incentivizing providers to use those pathways. There are pilot programs and some rollouts of episodic care models, both on the commercial and government side as well, that are trying to take away incentives to oncologists that may exist in the buy and bill or fee-for-service Let's just back up a second, just make sure that we cover these concepts. So you had mentioned just moments ago that there's a difference between a pharmacy benefit and a medical benefit. Sure. So under the pharmacy benefit, under that model, we're all familiar with having to make a copay when we go and pick up a drug at the pharmacy. And that has been a strategy for payers to get patients to think twice and providers to think twice about what value that treatment is and whether it's affordable. The medical benefit, and we think on the government side of Medicare Part B in particular, where a physician will do what's called buy and bill. So they buy the drug from a distributor and then they administer it to the patient and then they charge the payer for that drug plus a margin, an upcharge on the cost of the drug. So they bill and make a margin on that therapy. So you can imagine that as the drugs get more expensive, that margin in absolute dollars actually grows. So there's a perception that that could create a false incentive to providers to use more expensive drugs. At a minimum, I think we'd agree that it doesn't create any disincentives for using more expensive drugs under that medical benefit under Part B. There is a potential for providers, given the cost that we just talked about of some of these oncology products, to make a significant portion of their income from exactly what you just said, purchasing expensive oncology products and then 6% of a really expensive product is a lot more than 6% of a less expensive one. Right, right. So, uh, and that was that was certainly the situation probably, let's say, five years ago. We've seen a, a gradual decrease in what that margin is. So, Medicare has adopted this average selling price methodology. It was ASP plus six percent margin under the. Um, uh, oh. Well forget the name when the government ran out of money and they had to go back and get a peel back. I forget what that thing is called, but it dropped, I think, to 4.2%. And now Medicare is rolling out a demonstration project for buy and bill that I believe is 2.5%, the margin plus a fixed payment for managing the patient or the administration of, of that drug, like a, a fixed amount. So we're, we're seeing definitely recognition by payers to try and reduce that incentive and take it away and shift to uh, more episodic or bundled reimbursement. 
moving forward, you had mentioned with bundled payments. How is that affecting the price of an oncology course of therapy? I don't think it's changing the like the manufacturer pricing. It may have caused a problem in that by decreasing the margin, there may be an exacerbation of an even bigger incentive to providers to use more expensive products in trying to get what margin they can out of 2.5% or 4.2% versus the 6%. So, you know, there may be some strange things happening in the marketplace. Let me just backtrack a sec. You had mentioned before that payers are trying to figure out other ways. If this ASP plus some percentage, there's no way around creating this perverse incentive for providers to try to find the most expensive drug in order to get the best absolute dollars out of the percentage. You had mentioned pathways or bundled payments as ways to attempt to right size or fix the incentives to match what the end game is, which is how do you deliver outcomes that matter to patients? The oncology care model is probably what we're all watching. Last I heard, there were over a thousand practices participating and I think 17 payers. So it's very interesting to see how that's going to work out, that shift to an episodic model. There seems to be a lot of enthusiasm around participating in it. What exactly is the oncology care model? Like, what is it testing? The practice is getting paid a fixed amount to essentially manage the care for a patient. Plus, they're getting incentives around reducing costs and improving quality. I know that there are a number of other initiatives where pathways are being instituted and codified. What is the right way? What is the evidence-based approach to treat patients? What does that look like and how do you see it working and changing moving forward? Pathways are, I think, an excellent way to try and get more consistent management of care as long as those pathways are based on cutting-edge data and the best evidence that there is. Fortunately, there is a gold standard in the NCCN guidelines that at least gives a defined area of options for pathway guidance that payers and providers, uh, organized providers, IDNs, can go to as a, as a baseline. They've even been more refined with NCCN offering evidence blocks on limiting those options to what are the most cost-effective options within the guidelines. So I think the pathways are an excellent way that, and we're seeing them being embraced by payers and incentivizing oncologist providers for staying on those pathways. Right when you began talking, you said, as long as the pathways reflect the gold standard. Well, I I think there may be uh, a temptation for a pair to have a pathway with less expensive therapeutic approaches in the pathway. And that's fine as long as the evidence supports that and that patients aren't getting an inferior treatment. So NCCN codifies the level of evidence in its pathways. And so a category one recommendation representing that there's good phase three comparative data that uh, supporting the use of that option, that those aren't denied to patients, that lower evidence, that those category one options are not part of the pathway is, is the fear. But I don't think that's happening. I think that for the most part, payers are tr- at this point happy with trying to at least get more consistent care. We haven't 
seen so far aggressive means of trying to limit the cost of care through pathways. This just reminds me of the fact that it's illegal for payers to deny oncology therapy to patients on any basis, including cost. I mean, there's actually legislation that that says that. Yeah, no, just to be specific, it's Medicare is required by law to pay for any oncology therapeutic for its FDA-approved indication and compendia-listed indication. And that one of those compendia is the NCCN compendia, which follows their, their guidelines. So that legislation does not extend to commercial payers? On the commercial payer side, I think it's on a more on a state-by-state state level where there's been laws compelling payers to cover oncology therapeutics for their indicated costs, but it's less it's, – it's more of a patchwork on a state-by-state state level. If there's also an inability of Medicare, you know, there's legislation which says that Medicare cannot negotiate the price of a product. So if you have legislation which says that oncology products must be covered – and then you also have legislation that says that Medicare cannot negotiate the price. I don't know. It just uh... <laughs> it certainly has given there aren't any checks except the court of public opinion on the price of cancer drugs and other drugs for that matter. And you get situations like Shkreli and the uh, Daraprim situation where some manufacturers, less scrupulous manufacturers, may try to take advantage of those circumstances. What does the pharma industry need to know about this? And do you recommend that the industry be thinking of right now, given, as you said, the court of public opinion is pretty hot right now, number one. And number two, payers, including Medicare, are beginning to get very serious about their pathways as well as the pilot programs. Right. I, I think it's important that manufacturers can communicate and demonstrate the value of their medications. It's been much more rigid in Europe to get reimbursement through organizations like NICE have been require a lot of diligence on uh, pharmacoeconomics to demonstrate what the value of a medication is. So they need to bring those value propositions and facilitate where their drugs get placed on those pathways. If manufacturers can communicate and demonstrate the total value of care and lowering overall healthcare burden for a payer, then it will help them be able to have those products placed well in a, uh, in a pathway, you know, do relatively well. I think payers have still yet to get really activated about managing this class. And partly I think it's due to that legislation. But I think there will be a day when payers start suggesting more firmly in that pathway and actually creating a step approach where by if the level of evidence is higher to use a drug before others, that that in fact happens. Basically, if you're a pharmaceutical manufacturer and you're concerned about your stock price, because these are public companies, the advice would be raise your price as high as you can because your days are numbered to be able to do so? No, no. I'm, <laughs> I'm saying they need to be able to demonstrate that the pricing is appropriate for their product and that that price level, there is value in that and, and that there's value to payers for that. 
But it seems like this is something that's going to be coming. It's not necessarily something that's here yet. I'm thinking of the the anecdote that every time the gun legislation seems like it might be around the corner, all of a sudden gun sales skyrocket. So we're in that same moment in time right now where if it appears that there's going to be legislation or, or pathways or just like thinking that's going to limit the cost of products in the future, that if you you're a manufacturer, then you have every incentive right now to try to make a buck while the getting's good. Although I think that for the first time, both uh, candidates of the major parties for the presidential election are not against some ability for Medicare to negotiate prices with manufacturers. So outcome of the election or at post-election, there may be a uh, change to that taking the handcuffs off Medicare in their ability to negotiate prices with manufacturers. I've heard a term recently more often than I, I've heard it ever in my past, which is reputational strategy. Perhaps it would behoove pharma to start thinking, you definitely don't want to get yourself in a situation where people's memories are long enough to recall the time when you... <laughs> Raise your prices <laughs> <laughs> to a level which was not a win-win, perhaps. There's some tough conversations that are, are probably going to have to happen. I mean, they've been happening in Europe in thinking about what the cost of medication could be in terms of value for a quality-adjusted life year gain, the, the so-called quality, and thinking about what is the upper limit that society can afford to pay for an additional year of life. And that's, for America, I think that's antithetical. I, I would just, the, to, to put value on human life seems crazy. But when the cost of therapeutics would get to the point where it could undermine the the entire system of care, then I wonder if those discussions aren't going to be in our future. What advice would you have for a pharmaceutical manufacturer then as they enter these contracting negotiations with payers as well as Medicare? What are the important things that a manufacturer might need to keep in mind? And then on the flip side, what does a payer need to be considering here? Yeah, I think they need to think about delivering value and being able to, using real-world data, be able to support that value. So value-based contracting. One of the, uh, prior to my uh, coming to the U.S., like over 20 years ago or something. From Canada, right? <laughs> from yeah. Canada. We launched a drug in Canada, Taxotere, and we did one of the first value-based uh, kind of a risk-sharing program, we called it, whereby if a patient failed to get a response from the treatment, we would give the treatment, the, the vials of drug back to the health system to treat their next patient. So it was an example of us uh, standing behind the value that we were claiming the product could believe uh, and sharing some of that financial risk with payers. Do you feel like that's the way forward for all parties to begin thinking that we all keep talking about how fee-for-service is going away? Maybe we need to apply that same thinking to in the, the pharmaceutical space. Maybe we shouldn't be paying by the pill. Maybe we should be paying by the value that it delivers. Yeah, and I think that we're seeing a shift to alternative payment models for provider reimbursement. And I don't think that's not far off that and maybe a visionary manufacturer 
can think of in oncology, think about value-based contracting to fit in and align with a more value-based reimbursement system. So if someone is interested in learning more about this area of your subject matter expertise, my friend, where can they get a hold of you? Yeah, you can reach me through our website at aventriahealth.com. Thank you so much for being on the program today. Thanks. Links to everything discussed on the program today can be found at RelentlessHealthValue.com. If you visit the website, RelentlessHealthValue.com, you will also find a complete listing of all of the shows that we have published thus far with leading entrepreneurs and executives in the healthcare space today. Another cool feature is, you know, you can subscribe to the show so that every week, the episode is automatically sent to you so you don't have to remember to go to the website to download it. Thanks so much for listening.